We're not just gonna let you walk out of here. Who's we, sucker? Smith and Wesson and me. Go ahead. Make my day. Clint Eastwood's Dirty Harry embodies the American culture of lethal self-defense. America has a love affair with guns. It's that long history of racism and sexism that's also under-acknowledged in our culture. One of the things I argue in, in my work is that it's the denial of these histories that makes our society so vulnerable to the spread, um, to the contagion of armed citizenship. That is Harvard professor Caroline Light. Today we discuss her book, Stand Your Ground, a history of America's love affair with lethal self-defense. It's time now for Progressive Spirit. Stay with us. Pacifica Radio Network, the Public Radio Exchange, PRX, and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit. Progressivespirit.net. I'm John Shuck. I know what you're thinking, punk. You're thinking, did he fire six shots or only five? Now, to tell you the truth, I forgot myself and all this excitement. But being this is a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and will blow your head clean off. You could ask yourself a question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? The good citizen defends his castle. Punks, thieves, thugs, and rapists don't stand a chance against a 44 Magnum in the hands of the good guy who stands his ground. That's the myth. The reality is that America's love affair with guns and lethal self-defense has not made America safer, just more violent and more afraid. These mythologies of armed citizenship are really deeply entrenched, and a lot of people do believe that they can be those good guys who protect everybody from these violent strangers when the, the data shows us that actually, to the contrary, more often than not, um, guns are not successfully used in self-defense. They're typically used offensively. Harvard professor Caroline Light explores the development of the American right to self-defense and reveals how the original duty to retreat from threat was transformed into a selective right to kill. In her book, Stand Your Ground, A History of America's Love Affair with Lethal Self-Defense, Professor Light traces white America's attachment to racialized lethal self-defense by unearthing its complex legal and social histories. From the original castle laws of the 1600s, which gave white men the right to protect their homes, to the brutal lynching of so-called criminal black bodies during the Jim Crow era, and the radicalization of the NRA as it transitioned from a sporting organization to one of our country's most powerful lobbying forces. Unlike the mythology of Dirty Harry and redemptive violence, America's stand-your-ground culture and laws that accompany it do not protect the vulnerable against Mr. Stranger Danger. Just the opposite. Professor Light exposes a history hidden in plain sight showing how violent self-defense has been legalized for the most privileged and used as a weapon against the most vulnerable. Via Skype from Cambridge, welcome Professor Light to Progressive Spirit. Thank you so much for having me, John. I'm honored to be here. 
Let's go right to it. I actually want to talk. Your book is a history book of the of the stand your ground and the lethal self defense uh, throughout the United States uh, and even before the United States was the United States. But I really kind of want to start with the end um, and the features of the current stand your ground laws. Uh, the thirty three states have them. What are the features of these laws, and how do they differ from pre existing self defense laws? That's a great question to start with. Um, the thing about these laws is that they're really quite a moving target. They vary significantly from state to state. Um, so there, I say 33 states have some version of a stand-your-ground law. Not all of them call them stand-your-ground laws, um, and, and they vary significantly. So like one, one point of variation um, has to do with the specific geography of where you're allowed to stand your ground. And when we say stand your ground, basically what we meet is that you have no duty to retreat um, when you feel the need to use uh, violence in defense of your person or in defense of other people or in some states in defense of your property. So there's so much variation in terms of where you're allowed to be. For some of them, it's anywhere that you may legally be. So like in Florida, for instance, literally any place that you may leave, any place where you may legally be is a place where you can stand your ground and use lethal self-defense. Um, some other states have limitations on where you can be when you use lethal self-defense. You could be in your car, for instance. Um, you could be in uh, your place of business. Um, but uh, they, they vary significantly um, in terms of ge geographically where you're allowed to be and in terms of what you're allowed to be protecting beyond just your physical person. And the Stand Your Ground laws started in uh, 2005 in Florida. Um, I'm just going to read the quick text that you have in your book here of what the law is. A person is justified in using or threatening to use deadly force if he or she reasonably believes that using or threatening to use such force is necessary to prevent imminent death or great bodily harm to himself or herself or another or to prevent the imminent commission of a forcible felony. A person who uses or threatens to use deadly force in accordance with this subsection does not have a duty to retreat and has the right to stand his or her ground if the person using or threatening to use the deadly force is not engaged in a criminal activity and is in a place where he or she has a right to be. And Jeb Bush uh, signed this into law in 2005 after it was approved by its, uh, the Florida government. Um, so how did that law first develop? Um, that law developed out, out of several years discussion among legislators um, and elected officials about the need for law-abiding citizens, and this is a this is a contested concept, this idea of the law-abiding citizen, and we can talk about that more later on. Yeah. But the, the point in this particular instance of, of Florida legislation was that many leaders and uh, elected officials were, and citizens were um, concerned that the burden was too high on law-abiding citizens who felt themselves threatened by criminal elements. There was a lot of concern that uh, in a home break-in, for instance, um, you might be woken up in the middle of the night and find somebody in your house trying to steal your television. And if you shot that person, there was concern that you might end up going to jail for fighting back against a criminal in your home. So these laws emerge in direct response to that to help alleviate this perceived burden on property owner, property owning citizens and so-called law abiding citizens who felt themselves and their property to be under threat by criminal elements. Um, so the laws emerge in direct response to that perceived threat. Um, another interesting element about, about the way the laws emerged was that there was a deliberate effort, lobbying effort by uh, the National Rifle Association to show that law-abiding citizens need the legal means to use deadly force 
against criminal elements. And a part of that was very much about gender and race and perceived threat. So in my book, I try really hard to look simultaneously through analytical lenses of gender and race and sexuality and think about the extent to which those proponents of the law mobilized fears of women being threatened by rapists lurking in bushes. Um, and this was very much a part of the passage of the very first Stay in Your Ground law. Marion Hammer, who was part of the leadership of the NRA, stood up and talked about how she herself had, had found herself in a dark parking garage one time um, and uh, was, was being um, threatened by uh, and followed by a group of men. And um, through her own strength and determination and the fact that she had a firearm, she was able to stand her ground and scare away these thugs. And so when she was testifying about this experience, it triggered the fears of these law-abiding citizens that um, women in particular, uh, and it was unstated, but particularly white women, need the lethal means by which to protect themselves from perpetrators and thugs. And again, all of this is very subtly um, but resolutely and deliberately racially coded. So um, baked into this law and this system, this regime of armed citizenship, I argue in my book, are prevailing suppositions about who the criminals are, what the bad, guy, the bad guys look like, and the capacity of law-abiding citizens to see a bad guy, to know a bad guy when they see him. Yeah, and I want to continue with that story about the NRA uh, appealing to female gun enthusiasts. As you point out in the book, uh, the real threat, uh, sexual violence, mostly comes not from strangers in bushes, but from people uh, women know. Uh, you know, wh whether right. it's on campus or their own husbands. So how does the stand your ground law protect women who defend themselves against their husbands or men they know uh, who have assaulted them? Well, this is something I've been working on more recently um, because you're absolutely right. Women statistically are more frequently threatened by intimate partners, male intimate partners. And so um, in the cases that I've been looking at, staying your ground is um, woefully incapable of protecting women from assaults by their own intimate partners. I keep finding case after case of women of all different class and race backgrounds in all different regions of uh, states that have stay in your ground laws who stand up to defend themselves against a violent male spouse and they end up criminalized. They end up going to prison, or if they don't go to prison, they plea down. So um, this is a, the next stage of my research is to try to find actual data, because that data is rather elusive to us um, for many reasons, of the, uh, the number of the percentage of women in prison, for instance, who are in prison after having shot and killed or wounded their abusive male spouse. Um, so I think that's that's one of those data points that really proves the lie of this uh, gun rights narrative that says women are safer if they're packing heat. And it's also based, as you just mentioned, on the on the mythology of the, the Mr. Stranger Danger um, out, yes. and that Mr. Stranger Danger uh, is usually uh, somebody who's probably not white, as we're going to talk about as we go back uh, through right. the history here. So let's go all the way back uh, to history, because it, it, it didn't used to be that the law was you could always meet um, uh, violence with uh, violent self-defense. You were supposed to retreat. And then the uh, famous phrase that came into place, uh, a man's house is his castle. Can you talk about how that phrase came to be and what that means in regards to uh, lethal self-defense? Sure. Um, I, one of the things I was really struck by when I started doing this research was that um, if you if you live in the United States today and you see all of these laws and, and also habits of mind that take shape as um, sort of common sense behavior around 
uh, armed citizenship, you you might not know. And in fact, most people don't know that um, long before there even was a United States, there was this really robust duty to retreat baked into British common law on which United States law is based. And um, essentially, British common law held human life in the highest regard. You were not allowed to kill somebody unless you had absolutely no choice. Um, you had to first try to get away from a violent encounter. So if someone came after you and was attacking you, you had to try to get away before you fought back and, as the law said, meet force with force. And that was known as the duty to retreat. Now, the one exception to that for civilians um, comes about in 1604 in a court case called Semaine's case. Um, and essentially, that was the case that popularized the expression, a man's home is his castle. And that was the, the castle doctrine, what we now know of as the castle doctrine, essentially that in your home or your castle, you should not be obligated to retreat from danger. So if someone enters your home and is threatening you, there is no expectation that you retreat first before fighting back. So that translates into what becomes United States law. And we have um, the Castle Doctrine here in the United States. Um, but what we see over time, starting with colonization of the Americas and then up to the present day, is the expansion, the selective expansion of that Castle Doctrine in the interest of particular kinds of castles and particular kinds of citizens for whom the castle essentially becomes everywhere they may legally be. Well, you quote something, you say that whiteness as property. So in a sense, there's a, there's this castle doctrine, but it's only for males, right? Who And at that time who owned property, uh, not women, and especially not women or men of, of color and in the time of slavery were the property of, of white males. So how does whiteness as property help us get a handle on this concept of the castle? Yeah, that this is one of my favorite concepts, actually um, popularized by a legal scholar named Cheryl Harris in the 1990s. She authored this excellent uh, article called Whiteness as Property, where she goes back into property law and parses out how it was that even unconsciously in the United States, we don't always notice it, whiteness continues to serve as one of the most valuable forms of property that a citizen can hold. And if you look back in time, um, back, you know, as the United States was becoming a nation, um, you can see explicitly how whiteness gets encoded as a particular form of property for the law-abiding citizen. And what I try to argue in my book is that um, whiteness was also tethered to masculinity and um, the presumption that the law-abiding citizen is a white property-owning male. And indeed, although you know today in our contemporary world, we uh, try to pretend that our that our law is blind, that we no longer have different legal provisions for people according to their gender or their sex. Um, still, we see how uh, old habits really die hard. We still adjudicate the law in the service of um, white heteromasculine property rights. So um, even though we might argue to the contrary today, uh, we still are very much um, a, a nation built on keeping and maintaining hetero white masculine property in the hands of white men. Stand Your Ground, A History of America's Love Affair with Lethal Self-Defense is the book. My guest is Caroline Light, if you're just joining us on Progressive Spirit. The um, how is this particularly American? I mean, we have more guns, I think, than people in the United States. I'm not sure about that statistic exactly, but we sure have a lot of them. And uh, and, and this emphasis uh, is, is growing uh, about needing more and more weapons and lethal self-defense. How is this particular to the United States? 
Yeah. So like you said, we're, we have <laughs> more guns per capita than, than, uh, comparably developed nations. Um, we also allow for civilian concealed carry in every state as of 2014. I think Illinois was the last state to allow for, um, con uh, concealed carry among civilians. Um, we are also witnessing the expansion of these laws, stand your ground laws that allow civilians to shoot first and ask questions later when they feel uh, threatened or when they, as the law states, reasonably perceive a threat. Um, so indeed we do, we are unique in terms of our adherence to what I call do-it-yourself security citizenship and armed citizenship has certainly been a long tradition in the United States. So in answer to your question about why, this is really the hard part. And I think the crux of my book is trying to parse out exactly how the United States uh, became um, a nation of armed citizens. Um, one of the one of the vectors of this is, as we were talking about before, uh, we were a nation based upon white masculine settler colonialism and whiteness as property was encoded in our constitution. So uh, settler colonialism, the idea that European descended predominantly Christian white men had a divine right, in fact, a manifest destiny to spread civilization from sea to shining sea. Um, without regard to any kind of property rights of indigenous people uh, who were here prior to the arrival of Europeans, um, that we were also an economy not just based on, I would say, dependent on transnational slave trade and an economy that even in the North, even after many Northern Northern uh states had outlawed, outlawed slavery, our whole national economy was based upon uh, the enslavement of human beings. And these are all legacies that exist with us today. We feel the reverberating violence of these legacies today. And in my book, that's I, I argue that what we're experiencing today in the spread of armed citizenship is absolutely um, all about that reverberating history that we do everything we possibly can to deny. And in fact, uh, you go back to um, we go back through history. At one point in history, you're talking about uh, uh, the period of, of Reconstruction and how that history was really rewritten uh, by. Uh, white Southerners uh, to exonerate them and to say how, how awful it was for, um, you know, blacks to get their freedom because it meant this great threat of them. Uh, talk a little bit more about um, the significance of lethal self-defense in that time period and how that developed. Yeah, there's a fantastic book that I think everybody should read by W.E.B. Du Bois called Black Reconstruction. It came out in the early 20th century. And there's a chapter, it may be the last chapter of the book, but I feel like for me, at least it's it's one of the most powerful chapters called The Propaganda of History. And essentially what Du Bois does in that chapter is he takes a very close look at history and the way in which history, most of it constructed by white, mostly male scholars at the time, portrayed the Civil War and slavery in ways that exonerated the South, in ways that um, ensured that black citizenship would be elusive even after the, the criminalization of slavery, after the conferring of citizenship on formerly enslaved people and the 15th Amendment, which uh, endowed black men with the, with the franchise, even after that uh, prevailing understandings, not just in the South, but also in the North 
of the Civil War as um, a transgression of Southern sovereignty rather than an effort to keep the nation united, um, even in the wake of, uh, even given the divisive uh, force of slavery, an effort to deny that slavery really had anything at all to do with the Civil War. These are all pernicious uh, historical fallacies that were very much in play in terms of how African-Americans, um, freed people in particular, were treated not just by, by uh, whites, but by state apparatuses that should have been in play to protect them. So one of the things that happens in the wake of the Civil War and the three civil rights uh, amendments to the Constitution is that systematically, state by state, um, African-Americans are disfranchised uh, through various innovations like um, grandfather clauses, poll taxes, literacy tests, and outright, uh, outright exclusion and, um, and violence. Uh, so they're, they're disfranchised. Um, and, and many states pass laws that uh, criminalize vagrancy, for instance, um, that ensure that uh, African-American men are continuing to work for white people rather than, uh, rather than work for themselves. Um, and many states also ensure that African-Americans are not allowed to own or carry weapons, firearms in particular, by which they might protect themselves from white supremacist violence. And this is very much uh, rampant, not just in the South, but also throughout the nation. Um, you see just after the Civil War, um, an uptick in mob violence. You also see uh, lynching become the norm, especially south of the Mason-Dixon line. Um, and state by state, it becomes more difficult for African-Americans to protect themselves because there are uh, laws known as black codes that explicitly ensure that they cannot have firearms. I'm speaking with Harvard professor Caroline Light, author of Stand Your Ground, A History of America's Love Affair with Lethal Self-Defense. More after the break. I'm John Schuck, and you're listening to Progressive Spirit. This is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schuck. We continue our conversation with Professor Caroline Light, author of Stand Your Ground, A History of America's Love Affair with Lethal Self-Defense. And you mentioned uh, the lynching and uh, the idea that it also was related to this uh, mythology of the, the the black man attacking uh, sexually the white woman, and, and yes. which was an attack really uh, on, on white male honor in some form or another. But th this constant fear of that was 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 energized laws and white uh, white violence against blacks. Right. This is the late 19th century is is the time of rampant fears of what was known as miscegenation. Um, that term gets invented in the 1860s in an effort to undermine um, President Lincoln's credibility. But essentially, miscegenation is uh, an invented word to uh, to characterize interracial marriage. And it wasn't just any interracial marriage. It was particularly uh, marriage between black men and white women. And there was widespread panic among whites that as soon as African-Americans were free from their bonds, that that black men would would want to marry white women. Um, so this was one of those pernicious uh, mythologies that spread not just throughout the South, but also in the North that normalized mob violence against 
African-Americans um, based on this notion that white men, that it was the duty of white men to, quote, protect their women from the black beast rapists. And I think one of the cruelest ironies of this mythology was that under slavery and after slavery, it was African-American women who experienced sexual violence from white men. And, and we have, you know, this is another data set that is elusive. Untold numbers of black women were sexually abused and assaulted by white men, obviously under slavery because they were property under slavery. But even afterwards, uh, white men took extreme liberties with black women. And yet this mythology of the black beast rapist downplayed and obfuscated the extent of the racialized violence against black women. So the stand your ground laws, as you point out in your book, uh, protect the privileged few white males generally over the many. Um, and, and that has been historically uh, uh, accounted for in, in your book. So what would you say then is kind of the, well, let's call it the smoking gun evidence that really that your statement that stand your ground laws protect the privileged few over the many. Uh, what, what, what would you say is the major case that we need to look at to show that that is true? Oh, well, the one that, I, well, there's actually two, um, and I like to look at them side by side. Um, the case that got me started on this research was the death of Trayvon Martin mm -hmm. um, in 2012. And I, most people, I think, remember this was a 17-year-old um, black young man in a Florida suburb. Uh, he was carrying, I believe, Skittles and iced tea. And he was walking home from the store when a uh, when George Zimmerman, who was a neighborhood watch uh, worker in that area and who was carrying a gun, um, saw Trayvon and was suspicious of him and called the police and said that he saw someone suspicious in his neighborhood. And the police said, do not follow the person. We will come and you stand down. George Zimmerman refused to stand down. Instead, he pursued Trayvon Martin. And we all know the end of the story is that um, Trayvon Martin ended up dead at age 17. Um, and Zimmerman was not arrested. Um, he was questioned by the police, but it took several weeks before he was finally taken into police custody. And as we know, uh, he was he was acquitted of any responsibility, um, even though he admitted to killing Trayvon Martin. So um, that case I like to look at alongside the case of Marissa Alexander, um, who uh, I believe it was a year or two before uh, before Zimmerman shot Trayvon, Trayvon Martin. Um, Marissa Alexander had just given birth to a child um, prematurely, and she was trying to leave her abusive spouse. And this was in the same state. Both of these instances happened in uh, Florida, um, and which is, as we know, the first stand-your-ground state. And um, Marissa Alexander was going to the home of her estranged spouse to collect her, her belongings and to leave when he arrived at the house and then refused to allow Marissa to leave. So she ends up firing warning shots into a wall so she doesn't shoot her spouse, she shoots the wall to get him away from her so she can leave. And he calls the police and she's arrested. She ends up going to jail. Um, she ends up pleading self-defense, just like George Zimmerman pled self-defense. Um, but while George Zimmerman was decided to be, while, while the courts decided that he was reasonable in his perception of threat from Trayvon Martin, Marissa Alexander was characterized as angry rather than fearful, and so she was excluded from the immunities of the Stand Your Ground law, which you read a piece of just a little bit ago. So I look at these two cases that happen in the same state, Stand Your Ground state, and both of these cases involved claims of self-defense against a perpetrator who was threatening. and. 
they turned out so incredibly differently. And for me, this is a this is an ideal uh, crystal clear smoking gun um, when we're thinking about the injustices perpetrated by Stand Your Ground and similar legislation. It's based on a certain supposition about what is reasonable fear. And one of the things I say in my book is that reasonableness is always in the eyes of the beholder. And so when you're in the court, when you're standing before the court and the jury and the judge and the prosecutor, you have to also think about what those various social actors are thinking of as reasonable. In the case of Marissa Alexander, it was not reasonable for her to fear for her life against her abusive spouse who had beaten her before, who had harmed her, who had threatened to kill her. And yet it was reasonable for George Zimmerman to perceive in an unarmed young black, young black teenager a deadly threat. And what you're pointing out here is is it isn't facts really don't matter in a lot of these things. It's the emotional right. appeal of a long history of racism and sexism. Right. And I would say, too, it's that long history of racism and sexism that's also under acknowledged in our culture. Um, and and I want to I want to mention class as well, because. Um, typically, if you're if you're a defendant claiming um, self-defense in a homicide case, if you don't have money to hire uh, defense attorneys who know what they're doing, who know how to navigate uh, these these laws, then you're also at a serious disadvantage. So one of the things I argue in, in my work is that it's the denial of these histories that makes our society so vulnerable to the spread, um, to the contagion of armed citizenship. So this may be beyond the scope of your book, but uh, one question might be, where do we go now? Um, so certainly education about our history uh, as well. Should we arm, uh, make sure African-Americans and women are armed, or is there a way to change the laws to make them more just? So I, I tend to, yeah, and I, this is sort of where I'm going next is to talk to people who, uh, who occupy different categories of what we might call social vulnerability. So for instance, there are organizations of, there's a, there's an organization in Texas right now for black women who arm themselves for their protection in a racist, um, and, uh, heterosexist and misogynist world. So, so goes the logic. They're um, they they exist at, at multiple intersecting uh, points of oppression, and therefore they need to be carrying weapons to protect themselves. My my issue with the argument of of armed citizenship, especially for minoritized or vulnerable groups, is that our laws are still going to criminalize those people when they stand their ground against socially dominant actors. So, for instance, women holding on to weapons as a way of protecting themselves, if they end up protecting themselves against a socially dominant actor, such as their own husband or the co-occupant of their so-called castle, as Marissa Alexander did, um, they're going to end up going to prison or, or they're going to end up in a circumstance where they're trying to prove that their perception of threat was reasonable. Our courts, our entire legal system is not set up to acknowledge the kinds of social vulnerabilities that would lead these people to see themselves as under threat in, the, in those moments. Um, so I, I, t I tend to actually caution against armed citizenship as a solution to these to these issues. And in your to your second question about changing the laws, I I don't know. I actually think it's going to take a lot more than that. It isn't just about the laws themselves. It's also about the way our criminal courts operate. Um, and this is something I'm trying to learn more about so that I can uh, get more detail on how the courts operate. But this is such a deeply entrenched 
complicated set of circumstances that we're up against here that I don't know that just changing the laws is necessarily going to eradicate the injustices. However, I am very nervous about the spread of stay-in-your-ground laws throughout the nation. I do think that's a problem. Well, let's talk about that, too. What are the effects of these stand-your-ground laws? Uh, Is there any data on terms of gun violence uh, or deterrence of crime or whatever in regard since this has happened? So um, one one recent data point is a study, uh, a study that looked at homicides in Florida since 2005 have shown that they're up over 30 percent. So even though not all the homicides are self uh, involve self-defensive violence, um, they're they're looking at just in general the the ways in which the new legal terrain, the shift to stay in your ground and away from it, the duty to retreat, ends up influencing, I would say, significantly uh, hom- rates of homicide. So a thirty percent uptick in homicides in a, in the first state that passed stay in your ground laws, I would say, is significant evidence that these kinds of laws really do influence the way people behave out in public space. So that's a new, a relatively new data point. There have also been several studies done to look at the racial implications of the law. So um, showing, for instance, that if you are a white person who has killed a black person and you claim self-defense, that you're much more likely to get acquitted than if you are a black person who kills a white person and claims it was in self-defense. Defense. So there are there are studies that have shown that as well. What I haven't seen um, is data showing um, how gender and race are all working together. Like, what is it like for? You know, a uh, a black woman, for instance, who stands her ground against a white man. What what you know? How how does that look? I haven't seen that kind of data yet, so I'm really interested and in keeping an eye out for that. But so far, uh, most of the studies are showing that staying your ground laws enhance um, or increase uh, already racially disparate. Uh, operations of criminal justice. So they actually exacerbate the racial injustice that we already have in our current system. And I don't know what the word that we use, I guess mythology, it might be one, but maybe you have a better word for this. What What is this big thing that we would call that um, that it feeds into this fear that these, the stranger is going to get us, us being the white guys uh, in general. Uh, what, what, do we, what do we call that? And how, how is that? I mean, that seems so pervasive. I mean, our president's talking about it all the time. Everybody's talking about this fear that we have of against uh, against this other and we need to arm. And, and if, gosh, if the theater had a bunch of people in it who had guns, boy, we would have stopped all these bad guys. And I don't even know if that's ever happened. But anyway, uh, tell it me about doesn't. that. Yeah, I you know, I call it, I mean, I tend to just call it stranger danger that we have uh-huh. this obsessive, widespread, anxiety based suspicion of strangerhood. And I think we have several figures of strangerhood that tend to loom large. So, so like you mentioned, uh, yeah, like the, the, the stranger in the movie theater who opens fire and if only there was a good guy with a gun, he, he wouldn't have killed so many people or in the pulse nightclub, if only one person had been armed, they would have, you know, prevented so much loss of life. These mythologies of armed citizenship are really deeply entrenched. And a lot of people do believe that they can be those good guys who protect everybody from these violent strangers when the the data shows us that actually, to the contrary, more often than not, um, guns are not successfully used in self-defense. They're typically used offensively. Um, Usually guns um, are difficult to handle when you're in um, that kind of circumstance, like a mass shooting or whatnot. So um, I also try to attend in my work to the ways in which 
figures of stranger danger tend to be gendered and racialized. So for instance, the fear of terrorism uh, is, is centered on a particular kind of figure of the terrorist that's um, often presumed to be Muslim, and that that ends up uh, promoting a certain kind of fear, especially when it comes to immigration laws. Um, there's also fears of the undocumented stranger trying to cross the border, especially the southern borders um, in the United States. There's uh, lots of racially coded language around thugs and gangbangers and criminals. Um, and these are also gendered kinds of strangers, too. They tend to assume a masculine figure of danger against which we should all be armed and pre prepared to defend ourselves. Um, so, yeah, that this habit of mind is like the kill or be killed kind of mentality. And um, and it's I, I think it's like a contagion. I think it's really easy to catch and it seems to be spreading. And it uh, isn't just citizens, um, police as well. Uh, in Portland, uh, we are uh, uh, nicknamed Whitelandia. And uh, there's a lot of racist history that Oregon has, including in Portland, and a lot of violence and targeting of blacks, uh, black males in particular. Um, and every now and then will come up and have a shooting of a young black man who is uh, unarmed or armed, armed, so to speak, with a fake gun. Uh, talk about a little bit, if you wouldn't mind, um, the policing aspect and, and how police departments feel about the stand your ground laws. Oh, yeah. Okay. So the two, two separate things. I would say that a big piece of the whole armed citizen ideal is also the militarization of our police. Increasingly in our nation, um, we, uh, we have police forces that are given um, weapons that are military-grade weapons. And tanks in some circumstances. So decommissioned military kinds of um, equipment to fight criminals. Um, I would say that this is absolutely a big part of this mindset about kill or be killed, that, um, that the police are endowed with a particular kind of military power in this nation that seems to be increasing. Um, and obviously, too, there's the, 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 thank goodness we're paying more attention to it now, but I don't know if we're necessarily doing anything about it, but Black Lives Matter and, and similar organizations are increasingly calling attention to the fact of police brutality against people of color, um, particularly men, but not only men. So black women, too, are subject to um violence from law enforcement throughout the nation. So um, this is also a part of this puzzle, is that we're a nation that seems to be okay with having a heavily armed, militarized police force that, that hasn't been sensitized to the pernicious histories of racial inequality in our nation um, that instead are endowed with the, the power to decide in a nanosecond whether to take a life and, and to feel that it is reasonable to, um, to take the life um, of people of color, even when they are un unarmed, even when they're children. So uh, police brutality is a big part of all of this because essentially I'm trying to train a critical lens on um, naturalized forms of knowledge, habits of mind that make it okay to take another person's life. Yeah, I, I'm, the phrase that's going through my mind right now is uh, one uh, called the myth of redemptive violence, that somehow it's when the good guys have guns and they beat the guy, bad guys that have guns, that somehow that's that's saving for us. It, it almost has a, a religious or theological feel to it. It does. It does. And I, you know, as I'm, as I listen to people talk about, and that's what I'm trying to do. Actually, I'm, uh, I'm reading a lot of the comment sections on Facebook and online to, to get more insight into that mindset about the, the redemptive violence. How do people justify 
their use of firearms, of killing machines to take other lives? How do they desensitize themselves to that violence? And a lot of what I'm noticing is that, and this comes back to our conversation earlier about stranger danger, is that it involves a mindset where you're dehumanizing that person standing in front of you as a threat, yeah. where you no longer see it this person as a human being. The person, the stranger, becomes something subhuman. And the more I read and the more I listen to these conversations about redemptive violence, the more I'm noticing uh, the, the kinds of leaps of imagination where people are training themselves to see that other as not quite human. Caroline Light has been my guest. She's the author of a very important book, Stand Your Ground, A History of America's Love Affair with Lethal Self-Defense. Professor Light, thank you for this book, and thanks for being with me today. Thanks so much for having me, John. It's such a pleasure. Progressive Spirit is heard every week on several radio stations across the country. On Progressive Spirit, you hear interviews with cutting-edge scholars, authors, and activists who have something to say about social justice, human flourishing, and things that matter. If you enjoy the show, ask your local public radio station to check it out and consider adding Progressive Spirit to its weekly lineup. Progressive Spirit is formatted for radio and is distributed through the Public Radio Exchange, PRX, and the Pacifica Radio Network. You can also catch Progressive Spirit on podcast here on your favorite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, listen on iTunes or Stitcher or any app that has a place for a review. Leave one. More reviews help the show get a wider audience. And if you have ideas for guests or would like to comment on an episode, contact me through my website, progressivespirit.net. You can comment on Facebook and uh, tweet on Twitter. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon. I'm John Schuck. Be well.